We're finishing our little mini-series in Isaiah, and uh, we will be uh, going on to start studying the next block of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, in the coming weeks. And uh, Lord willing, next year we will move on into the next chunk of Isaiah from 40 onwards. Well, I, I hope you sensed it as the passage was read. We're dealing with very sober issues as Hezekiah confronts his death. And it's at moments like that, I, I find whenever I go to a funeral, this happens to me, I, I'm caused to think, what is life all about? What is the purpose of life? Uh, how am I supposed to make the most of whatever remaining days and years uh, that God gives me? Uh, Life Before Death was an exhibition that the Welcome Collection put together back in 2008. You can still see it online today. And it showcases the faces of those who, uh, of those who are dying before and after death. And underneath their pictures, it shows captions of their thoughts. A journalist and a photographer spent a year in hospices uh, visiting terminally ill patients during their last days. Uh, the, those photographed uh, age, range from about 83 years of age to a 17-month-year-old baby born with a brain tumor. Uh, Heiner Schmitz, there's a picture of him here, he said this, he's a 52-year-old man who was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He said, no one asks me how I feel because they're all scared. I find it really upsetting the way they desperately avoid the subject, talking about all sorts of other things. Don't they get it? I'm going to die. Another lady, Gerda, she couldn't believe that uh, at the age of 68 that cancer was cheating her of her hard-earned retirement. She was employed on an assembly line in a soap factory, and she brought up her children single-handedly, And she said this, my whole life was nothing but work, work, work. Does it really have to happen now? Can't death wait? But death doesn't wait, does it? It always seems to come at the wrong time. It doesn't really matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're well-educated or not, whether you're young or you're old, it can come and rudely interrupt your life. And that exhibition kind of reminds us to uh, the reality of death. So as we come to Isaiah chapter 38, uh, this is beautifully dealt with in this chapter, I believe. Because we're confronted here with the frailty of life. Even kings die. Hezekiah was facing death at the age of 39. 39 years of age. He was the king of this country of Judah uh, in the 8th century before Jesus. And you can read more about him in the Old Testament books of two kings and two chronicles. And you can discover that uh, in so many ways, Hezekiah's life was a huge success. He became king at the age of 25. He brought about great reforms in the country, spiritual reforms. He removed idols from the land, removing... uh, all the false gods of the Canaanite religions, and he brought about and established the right worship of God at the temple. According to two kings, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He kept the commands of the Lord. 
And alongside this spiritual renewal, uh, he was a, a military leader who had some success. He reasserted the nation as a significant player. Under his rule, he had economic prosperity, leading him to accumulate wealth. Storehouses were filled with uh, riches, grain, wine, oil, and animals. And he brought about great architectural and engineering projects, building cities, uh, redirecting water supplies into Jerusalem. You can still go to Jerusalem and see uh, the, 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 the tunnel that Hezekiah dug through solid rock to have a water supply coming into the city. And yet at the age of 39, he was seriously sick and at the point of death. But there's great news. Isaiah, the prophet, is coming to visit. Everybody loves it when the pastor visits, don't they? It's so encouraging to have a visit from the pastor, except his bedside manner is a bit lacking. Did you see that? 38 verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. It makes me feel quite a good pastor when I read that. It's not a subtle approach, is it? He's not beating about the bush. And actually, sometimes we need someone to remind us of this truth. At one level, I think what my job is as a pastor is to prepare you all to die. We don't often talk about it when I come and visit and chat. But actually, that's the real pretext. My job is to ensure that each one of you dies well, trusting in the Lord Jesus. Because death is a certain thing. And actually it's loving to be reminded of this. Because there's so many distractions in this world that will stop us thinking about this ultimate reality that is coming and facing all of us. Well, he passes on the message and this king, this good king, this powerful man, does what human beings do. He dissolves into tears. And he cries out to God, verse 3, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And he wept bitterly. Now you can read the, this account in 2 Kings chapter 20 and it's, it's filled out a bit more. Uh, it says, as Isaiah kind of walked away from the room and he's walking away uh, across the temple courts, uh, he gets a word from the Lord's. To go back to Hezekiah with a merciful message. And there it is in verse 5. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. Now, just as we saw last week, there's some great encouragement here to pray, isn't there? Did you notice it? Now, I want to say to you, this is not some um, general promise that anyone who prays like this is going to get 15 more years. I don't think the Bible promises you that. But I want you to see the way God observes and cares for his people. Verse 5, did you notice it? I have heard your prayer. Perhaps even more precious, I have seen your tears. Isn't that beautiful? When you're all on your own, with your face to the wall and breaking your heart, you are not alone. Does God notice when we pray? Does he notice when our hearts are breaking? Yes, he does. God is touched by his people's prayers. You know, as a dad, 
one of the hardest noises to ignore is one of your children sobbing their little heart out in the room. It takes a very tough man to turn up the volume on the TV at that point. Depends if there's a World Cup game, I guess. No, if you hear your little one break in their heart, you know, we as human dads, you just got to go. You want to comfort, you want to reassure you and say, how can I help you? I can come alongside you. How much more our loving Heavenly Father sees us in distress and sees our tears and hears our prayers. It is a great encouragement to pray. And Alec Mortier points this out in his commentary, the wonderful mercy of God because he, he hears his prayer even when it rests on false assumptions. Hezekiah sort of wants to leave his CV before God. Because I've walked faithfully before you, because of my wholehearted devotion. Well, was he wholeheartedly devoted? Eh, not so much. He was a very faithful man, except for when he wasn't. Just like most of us. It wasn't totally true. You'll see at the end of verse 17, you've put all my sins behind your back. He acknowledges that he has sinned. He has fell short. But for those in the middle of suffering right now, I want you to notice what Hezekiah could say. It's there in verse 17. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. Here's a thought. In the middle of our suffering, it might be part of God's good purposes to work good in us. Hezekiah could see that. It humbled him. It brought him close to the Lord. And even though Isaiah had formally declared he would die and not recover, because Hezekiah prays, because he prays, the Lord gives him a reprieve. I'll add 15 years to your life. You know, I've known some people who the Lord has answered their prayers and done that. I've known some amazing people and the Lord has not answered them but he assured them of his presence and his love and his care. And according to 2 Kings 20, Isaiah calls for a cake of figs to be brought and laid on Hezekiah's boil. It seems that this thing that was killing them was a pretty bad boil. Now we don't know exactly what the life-threatening disease was or how a, a cake of figs could do the job. And it seems if you read 2 Kings 20 that Hezekiah wasn't too sure about it either because he asked Isaiah after he mentioned the figs, he says, well, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and I'll go up to the temple of the Lord? At which point Isaiah asked him for what sort of sign he would like. Would he like the shadows to move forward on the sundial or on the steps backwards? And Hezekiah opts for them to move backwards and Isaiah prays and the Lord strengthens his weak faith by confirming to him that he would be healed with this remarkable sign. And I, and I love this, that uh, God is as much at work in miracles as he is in applying the medicine of some figs to his boil. I wonder, have you thanked God for the many ways he has answered your prayer to save your life? You didn't realize your life was in threat because you knew the doctor could give you antibiotics. But I wonder how many of those infections could have worsened. Have you thanked God for the way that he's cured you both uh, through uh, the ordinary means of uh, what the pharmacists gave you and what the doctors prescribed 
and that the nurses cared for you. And in answer to Hezekiah's desperate prayers, the Lord does give him 15 more years. But, you know, death was only going to be put back some time. And, and it strikes me as you read this um, account that Hezekiah wrote down from verse 9 onwards, that while it um, does have a note of joy at the end, it is pretty tinged with the reality of death. It was great news he was going to get more time. But instead of dying at 39, he was going to be uh, dying at the age of 54, still quite young. And this psalm is more about uh, how frail and fleeting life can be. Look at verse 12. This is how frail our bodies are. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I've rolled up my life and he's cut me off from the loom. Day and night you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion he broke all my bones. He's just feeling just washed out and broken as a person. Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am troubled, O Lord. Come to my aid. One of the um, strange blessings of my job is to visit people in hospital. And hospitals are full of sick and dying people. Um, I don't want to be too indelicate, but you go around and you smell the smell of decay, death. It's a reminder. Even as we live now, we live amongst the dying. And, and that's what is the note of this psalm. Uh, there's not the bright hope of resurrection life here, is there? But the sense of loss. So what is this life for? What, what is its purpose? What are we about? And I think he starts getting at it in verse 18. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Do you see what the point of life is? It is to praise this amazing God who gives you life. It is to be someone who has the joy of depending upon his promises and hoping in his faithfulness. Now is the time you can prove the worth and the worthiness of this great God by hoping in his faithfulness, by declaring his praises. And it goes on in verse 19, the living, the living, they praise you as I'm doing today. Fathers tell their children about your faithfulness. I hope sometime this week, if you've got children, you're going to ring them up this week and remind them about the faithfulness of God. Because that's what those who are living are to do. To worship this God by reminding their children about what a great God we have. How he is worthy of our worship and our praise and our honor. Now I don't know whether you notice, but these chapters are out of chronological order. The hint was uh, at the end of verse 6, I will defend this city. Well, we know that. That was what the last two chapters were about. So why is it that um, Isaiah puts chapter 38 and 39 here after the great events of the defeat of the Assyrians? Well, I, I, I think it's for this reason. For all Hezekiah's great achievements, he is only a frail man. He's been a great king, but he's not the great king. 
Back in chapters 9 and 11, we looked at them a few years ago now, um, you can read of the promised king, a Messiah who would rule and who would govern forever. His kingdom would never end, it says. Uh, he would rule over the nations. He'd bring peace. He'd bring about a transformed world where there'd be no more suffering. He had amazing names like this. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I think the points of chapter 38 and 39 is that Hezekiah is not that promised king. As great as his moment was of, of seeing the deliverance uh, that took place around Jerusalem, here is someone who is too frail to be the everlasting king. See, we need a king who's not daunted by death. We need a king who cannot be contained by death. We need a king with eternal life so that he can rule forever. We need a king who can conquer death and enable his subjects to share in that victory. Oh, for a king like that. That's what we need when we are lying in a hospice. That's what we need when we're in a dying world. For in truth, this earth is a hospice for all of us. Now, this king is too frail. That's the point of chapter 38. And not only that, but as we go to chapter 39, the problem with this king is that he's still too sinful. You know, we see here the pride, uh, the folly of pride. Uh, in Hezekiah's time, the superpower, as we thought it was, Assyria. But you know, the up-and-coming power was the power of Babylon. And after news of Hezekiah's recovery and uh, uh, news of this remarkable and fascinating sign, the king of Babylon sends some envoys to try and bolster this uh, potential relationship uh, that could be beneficial politically for them. Because Assyria was also breathing down the neck of Beridoc Baladans and uh, an uprising in a different part of the empire could be quite helpful to him. And uh, look at the reception that they got. In 39 verse 2, Hezekiah received the envoys gladly. Here was a big moment for Hezekiah. A considerable honor was being paid to him. The up and coming superpower had noticed him and they were lavishing attention on him. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Where in your career someone who is... Uh, you know, finished his career with OBEs, CBEs, you know, knighthoods perhaps, has chosen to get in touch with you. Happened to me once. And uh, they pick up the phone, they call you by your first name. Let's get together. We've noticed you. I'd like to talk with you. And inside you think, oh yes, finally I've been noticed. Very flattering. Have you had someone in a bigger business to you kind of Make a fuss, want to headhunt you. Maybe someone in political power want to meet with you and discuss matters. Very flattering to the ego and a terrible spiritual danger. And that was the moment in Hezekiah's life. The pressure was off. Things were going well. After all, he'd seen off the Assyrian threat. He'd known God's blessing in his life. God had answered his prayers and Days were not bad, and such days are perhaps the most dangerous days for us. Be warned as we head off on our holidays to sunny places. It's often the good times that are more of a threat than the bad times. 
Now, potentially, this was a great opportunity for him to uh, witness to the glory of God. I suppose the, uh, the Babylonians could have come and he could have uh, pointed out to the visitors how their nation had been brought into existence by, by this amazing God. They'd been sustained uh, through their long years by the grace of God. And in recent memory, that God had answered their prayer in remarkable ways. And he could have talked all about God and his goodness and that the glory should have gone to him. He could have done that, couldn't he? But instead, it seems as if Hezekiah took the opportunity to give glory to himself. His pride and his ego, he rose up. And with such important guests, he saw a wonderful opportunity to show them how important he was. Uh, Hezekiah could be a valuable asset to them. He could, uh, he could be a player. And so he rushed about, verse 2. He showed them all his treasure house. Look at all my stuff. All the silver, all the gold, all the precious oil. Look at my armory. Look at my storehouses. He'd accumulated a lot of stuff and he was proud of it. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom, the verses say, that Hezekiah did not show them. And you know what? They were very interested. He didn't really think about this, did he? A bit like noticing, uh, inviting the uh, notorious addict who burgles people's houses into your house and showing them around. Yes, here's where we keep the necklaces. Here are our MacBooks. Look, let me show it to you all. And do you know what? Sometimes we forget to lock the back door. There was a moment as stupid as this. And these envoys were taking his own saying, Oh, very interesting, Hezekiah. Wow, wow, it's a lot of, lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. They would come back and collect later. He must have felt a big man, but he was being a fool, wasn't he? And you get the sense of it, though, that uh, he didn't get it by the, the leading question of Isaiah, verse 3. Isaiah comes in, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a moment like that? Of course you have. Of course you have, we all have. We're all equally as sinful as Hezekiah. What fools we are. How we love to make ourselves look more important than we are. It is the evidence of our terrible problem of sin. As I said, Hezekiah is a great man of faith except for all the times when he's not. He trusts in God when his back is against the wall, but when things are going well, he's more than happy to take the credit for his successes and equally happy to rely on uh, the implicit promises of support from Babylon. And so when opportunity knocks, he goes for it. He's wowed by their wealth, their status, their military might. He's seduced by this implicit offer that uh, they can enter into alliance that could be mutually beneficial. He can achieve further prosperity, security, by making an alliance with Babylon. And he licks his lips at it. But Isaiah keeps probing with these questions, doesn't he? Verse 4. What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures I did not show them. So he tries to brazen it out. But the sad truth is that his attitude was one that was a reflection of the whole people and typical of how they respond to God and his word through the prophets for many years. The sin of pride that refused to trust in the Lord, that was instead uh, seduced by the promises of the surrounding nations, was the reason that God's judgment was inevitable. 
Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. There's something so ironic in the book of Isaiah. His father Ahaz was really worried about the Syrians to the north. And so he began to make an alliance with the Assyrians who came in and destroyed so much of the territory. King Hezekiah, worried by the Assyrians, began to look to Babylon. All the way through, they worried about the Assyrians. They shouldn't have worried about the Assyrians. It was the Babylonians that were going to get them. It was the Babylonians who let in through the front door without an army. Look at my stuff. We should note this very carefully, that the things we trust instead of God will eventually destroy us. The things that we trust instead of God will end up harming us. Jesus said, if, if anyone sins, he is a slave to sin. Uh, sin says, well, I'm going to help you take control of your life, uh, your destiny. You're going to have a great time. Come with me. And yet we become a slave to sin, and the devil does not treat us well. Look at these closing words of Hezekiah. The last thing we have of Hezekiah in this book of Isaiah. The word of the Lord you've spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought... There'll be peace and security in my lifetime. What do you think about that? Phew, not on my watch. Not my problem. Not a very godly response, was it? His first thought was for himself. At least it's going to be nice for me. I'm going to keep my palace the way it is. He was not firm in his faith. He's too frail, chapter 38, and he's too sinful, chapter 39. Sin is always the big problem, isn't it? Uh, That's why they were carted off into exile in 587 BC. That's why the Babylonians did come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take it all away. And it is our problem. Sin is our problem. It is our ego and pride that is our problem. And we are just as entranced worshipping the stuff of this world rather than the creator who made it all. And you know what? Judgment is inevitable for people like that. Judgment is inevitable for people like us. We need a king who is not seduced by the pull of this world. This fallen world. We need a king who is always trusting God. Someone who's always pleasing to God. We need a king whose, whose righteousness can actually cover over his people's sins. Whose obedient record can stand in the place of their disobedience and shame. Oh, for a king like that. Wouldn't it be great to have a king like that? And, and that's the great news that we have got to proclaim here at Charlotte Chapel. We have a king like that. The Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 to 39 really set us up for what's coming in chapters 40 to 66, where God continues to promise hope beyond the exile because of a person, a righteous servant, 
who would come and stand in the place of sinners. Promises all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. The king who could say, standing by the graveside of his best friend, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. And even if we die, we have life with him forever. That's what he promised. Here is the king who showed that he could fulfill that in his own resurrection from the dead. So who are you trusting with your life? Who are you trusting with your death? It will surely come. The day will come. Maybe it'll be in a hospice. Maybe it'll be in an accident. But the day will come. And the question at that point is, who are you ultimately relying upon? Are we basically going to be seduced by the the false promises of this world? Are we going to look to this king? The one that God has provided for your salvation. I'm looking forward to driving to the south of France uh, later this week. But maybe I'll die. I'm, I'm ready to go. Are you trusting Christ? Are you ready? And if you're not ready, why don't you turn to trust him today? Why would you wait? Why would you wait? Whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus said, will never die. The Apostle John warns us as we think about chapter 39 of the folly of loving this world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. In essence, the first half of Isaiah could be summarized with this phrase back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. If you're not firm in faith, you will not stand at all. The only safe place to stand is firm in your faith in Christ. Why don't you trust him today? Don't waver. Don't put it off. Think you've got another week. Humble yourself before the Lord. Do you know what? If you come to him today, this is what God says. He hears our prayers. He sees our tears. Why don't you turn to him today? Let's pray.